0: Lord. Spirit, I thank you for speaking to us through that prayer that Aaron just prayed. I thank you that you have given us hope and a future in you. And I thank you, Lord, that our fate is not determined, Lord Jesus, by the hands of man or either to the positive or to the negative, as we read in your word, Lord, says of salvation is not of him who runs, but of God. Lord, every one of us here who confesses faith in Jesus Christ does so on the basis of your sovereign work in our heart, planting those seeds that have now, by your grace, produced fruit, taken root. Lord, as Aaron prayed since that horrible day ten years ago when our nation endured, the collapse of many people's hopes and dreams, false securities, along with two towers in New York City, we've been asking questions. This nation, Lord Jesus, is full of questions. And there are many who say on all sides and all quarters, here is the answer. But there is only one way and hope for man to have any of his questions answered, all of his questions answered, and we find it in your word. As Aaron prayed that this nation would be rebuilt, Lord, I pray that the foundation of our understanding would once again be built upon the truth of your word. Lord, we as a small body confessing, Lord, our faith in Jesus Christ and rallying around your word this morning, I pray that this service and this sermon would take a step, Lord, and carve a stone and lay it in place to build our thinking, to build our future, our understanding. And look for answers to our questions in your word. Give us the faith that they are all there. And then give us the understanding to discern. So that if anyone might ask for a reason for the hope that is within us in the near future. That we might point them to the rock of our foundation, Jesus Christ. As revealed in glorious ways in the word of God. Bless us as we study your holy word, Jesus. And if there's any truth conveyed in this message, you deserve the glory. Lord, I pray that you would take and break and multiply our best attempts, Lord, to shed light on who you are. Holy Spirit, take this time and use it to your advantage to grow our hearts, Lord, in deeper conviction. And let it take root, Lord Jesus, and produce fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our text today will be in Psalm chapter 4. Number 4 in a sermon, sermon series on a psalm a month. The second Sunday of the month we are studying the psalms and moving our way through them and that leads us this month to Psalm chapter 4. I'll open this message by giving you a title and following it with uh, reading these eight verses. The title of this message is Everyone Answered, Everyone Answered or an answer for everyone. Any question worth asking is answered in the word of God as we prayed this morning and every position that is laid out and every question that is laid out, situation that is addressed in Psalm 4 has an answer. It's an amazing chapter and it took me a while to see how amazing it was and I'm sure I've only scratched the surface. But we'll open by reading these verses and hopefully follow it up with some deeper understanding as the Lord leads us to discover what might be hidden in these words. In verse 1, David is writing, it's a psalm addressed to the choir master with stringed instruments, so it's meant to be sung and worshipped used in worship as a hymn of praise. In verse 1, he says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Verse 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lay down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are very similar. It's apparent in the context that David is in a bad way again, in distress. Likely during one of his many trials. Spurgeon says of this psalm that it's a glorious flower, a choice flower. Grown in the garden of affliction. Spurgeon finds himself in his commentary on this psalm, thanking God for David's trials, because without them, we wouldn't be blessed with these glorious prayers, these heartfelt appeals to heaven in the middle of something very difficult. A garden, or fl- a choice flower grown in the garden of affliction. Another church father, or a church father, I should say, Chrysostom, I think is his name, He goes way back. There's a quote I lifted from some uh, reading material. And he said of this psalm, and particularly uh, verse 2, If I were the fittest in the world to preach a sermon to the whole world, gathered together in one congregation, and had some high mountain for my pulpit, from whence I might have a prospect of the whole world in my view, and were furnished with a voice of brass, a voice as loud as the trumpets of the archangel, that all the world might hear me. I would choose to preach upon no other text than that in the Psalms. O mortal men, how long will you love vanity and follow after leasing, which means lies? He's referring to Psalm chapter 4, verse 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? I don't know if anyone has committed Psalm 4 to memory. We have a few psalms that we work on memorizing in our house. Psalm 19, Psalm 24, both come to mind. Psalm 91. I wondered as I was reading some of this commentary from Chrysostom, from Spurgeon and others, what I was missing. I had skipped over this psalm. I'd read it too quickly. There was treasure hidden there that they had discovered that I had not. And that thought drove me to study this week as i asked myself the question what influenced christus so that he would refer to this chapter if he was going to deliver a sermon in a -a once-of-a-lifetime opportunity with the whole world listening and what influenced Spurgeon to say that this is the choicest of flowers grown out of the garden of affliction maybe part of the answer comes in the structure of this poem itself and it's interesting to me in my study of the Psalms to consider them as what they are, poetry. The Psalm states the position, once again, that David is in, in his stress. And it also states the position that the unbelieving are in as they make a mockery of what God's people consider honorable as they celebrate vanity while we promote significance, as they seek after lies while we hold to the truth. David states things the way they are, but every seemingly insurmountable obstacle, every question that is raised, also finds its answer in the structure of the psalm. And it's ingenious because the first verse says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. So, one way to study the psalm could be to arrange it in two columns. One side would be questions, and the other side would be answers, or one side positions. And one side answers. So, in order to give this message and shed some light on that, I labeled the first point, the position of the believer. Where does the believer find himself in the course of life that might inspire a prayer like David's? And what hope should he resort to when he feels like David did? Surrounded by the threat of wickedness, surrounded by the naysayers to the gospel. Surrounded by people who are willing to take up arms against God and his ways and his chosen. It says again in Psalm chapter 4, verse 1 Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Position number one of a believer, one who is in covenant with God as David was, one who in the New Testament accepts Jesus Christ as the purchase payment, his death as the purchase payment for our sins. The first position that we come to as a believer is that we are no longer Lord of our righteousness. We are no longer God over our decisions. We or no other false God is in charge of determining truth, righteousness, the future, the next step to take for us. David says from the get-go in this psalm, this foundational statement, O God of my righteousness, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. It's an easy phrase to miss, but it occurred to me at the end of Judges that when people looked to other things like themselves for their righteousness, it created such havoc in the nation that the whole society fell apart. And I think if we judge according to Scripture the days that we live in, we might find them similar to the book of Judges. You don't have to turn there, but in Judges 21, verse 25, the very last phrase, the last sentence, the last verse that the author leaves us with is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. The last sentence, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The nation, the city, the people was falling apart at this time. It was like a downward cycle where they could never get their feet underneath them. They were weak and susceptible to the enemies around. Why was that the case? It says right at the close of the book, the reason for the chaos in the nation. It's because everyone sought after their own righteousness. No one said with David, O God of my righteousness, they were doing what they thought was the right thing. They were going by their feelings. They were following whatever truth that they confessed. But they were—they had missed the most important thing for a believer, that you are not the judge of right and wrong. You must look to the Word of God to determine your footsteps and where you should go. Now, we act all the time. We make decisions based on what we feel is true, but it's very rare It was very rare in the time of the judges and rare today that we find people acting in a way where God is Lord of their righteousness. So the question comes to mind as we consider this fact that will we have an answer to our prayer under those conditions? There are those when crises strike who cry out to God in desperation. But up to that point, if God had never been Lord over their righteousness... If God had never defined the terms on which they lived their life, are they in the right position to even expect their prayer to be answered? The answer is no. And God will intervene in His grace and in His mercy. And we are never worthy of the answers to our prayers. But one thing we must do is come to the, We must come to the reality that David confesses in Psalm chapter 4 verse 1 which means which is to say there is no other truth aside from God there is no other righteousness aside from what he decrees and there will be no forthcoming answer to our problems until God is God of our righteousness the second position of the believer is stated David under these circumstances in the next phrase when he says you have given me relief When I was in when I was in distress. So David is in this position of distress, but also faith. The Lord has delivered him in the past. And he trusts he's praying that God would answer his prayer and deliver him in the future. But a believer, one of God's chosen, one of his own will often find himself in this position where it seems, if you look at the circumstances around you, that hope is doubtful. But if we follow the example of Psalm 4, we need only to look to our own salvation to realize that we were in far worse distress than these circumstances and this enemy represents right now and realize that if God can deliver my soul from hell, then he can deliver my body from this affliction. If God can redeem and regenerate this dead man and make him alive in Christ, then he can give me the breath of life to see another day if it pleases him in his glory and his will for me to continue to advance his kingdom lord on that basis answer my prayer you have given me relief when I was in distress and the third position of the believer be gracious to me and hear my prayer it's a hope based on grace so when the believer comes to the Lord in prayer under these circumstances First of all, he must confess that God is righteousness. That he is Lord of the future, of the now, of the right way to act and of the hope that we have at the end of our prayer when the answer comes. And secondly, although we can confess that we're in distress, we look to God's working in us so far to give us the faith. And then thirdly, Our hope is based on His grace. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. I don't want us to leave this first verse and miss, however, the exclamation points at the end of the first and the last sentence, the first and third sentences of this chapter. It seems that David is honest and crying out. The position that David finds himself in is one of extreme Of extreme in extreme situation, he says, "Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer." And you can hear at the beginning of this prayer really the cry and the desperation and the sense that he needs to be that in his situation. Is hopeless without God's intervention. The exclamation point at the end of these sentences seems to denote a sense of desperation nonetheless. Although David is a man of faith, although the Lord is his God and the God of his righteousness, he feels weak in his soul. And he feels like at any moment he will be crushed. And his emotions are desperately crying out to be surrendered to the hope and security that can only be found in meditating on a sovereign God. Many times when I think about the saints in scripture, and I imagine maybe putting together a movie script to portray someone like David, I may not include the same weaknesses and vulnerability in the way I would imagine him living out in that story, in that play, as was probably actually the case. I'm sure there were times when David was wincing in pain when he was grieved to the core, when he spent all night praying, when he was tempted to yell out and to cry and to throw his sword in disgust and to rail against the circumstances around him and to really run away from it all and just forget the calling that was on his life in order that he might escape the pressure he was under and resort to a life of ease that we all wish we had. I'm sure David had these moments. what kept him what kept him during these times of distress well it certainly was his faith faith like abraham's which was counted to him for righteousness it was his commitment to god's covenant that one day he would have a son who would bring peace and hope to all of israel and that son would be fulfilled in jesus christ and we know him today as our lord and savior and was that hope and expectation for david that allowed him to go through these difficult times with a hope based on grace. God had delivered him before. He would deliver him in the future. And he had the glorious promise that a faithful sovereign God would never fall short on. That one day a Messiah would come through his seed and rescue him and all of Israel. Verse 2, the position of the unbeliever, point number 2. O oh, men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame. How long, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? I think David is angry in this verse. If we were to read this the way the it seems the context lends toward the emotion that he might have felt as he penned these words is probably very forceful and angry. O oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? I've had enough. The reason I think that David is angry in verse 2 as he gives admonition later in verse 4 when he says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds. In other words, there is a right place for our emotions to be expressed. But I think this psalm teaches us that it is right to find our emotions surrendered and in submission to the Lord. Another way to say it is, when we feel strongly about something, our flesh is tempted to vent. But if we take that same energy and that same motive and take it to worship, we may find ourselves expressing that anger in a way that actually glorifies God. And this is an interesting concept, and it's one that's difficult for me to, to express because I haven't thought about it that much. But I think David is genuinely ticked off. He is genuinely exercised. He is angry at anything that would be a threat to the glory of God. He is going to defend to the death even if it takes his own life, the honor of his Lord. He hates vain words. He hates lies. This is the position of the unbeliever. One might ask, did David hate unbelievers? Well, inasmuch as their position represented an antichrist spirit or that which is totally opposite to what God ordained, there are times in the scriptures. There are times in the, in the Psalms when strong words are used against that position of where those people stand. Certainly, if you were to think of your own sin, you could respond in prayer asking that God's grace would be extended to those who stand in opposition to His truth, that they would come to Christ. But l- let's not pass over the fact that where they stand today is something that is reprehensible in the eyes of God and should be reprehensible in the eyes of those who defend His glory. The position of the unbeliever, one who who does not have God as the Lord over His righteousness, turns the honor, or honor is turned into shame. In verse 2, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? I think what David is saying here is, that which I behold as honorable, that which I consider holy and valuable, which is that which God has decreed, is righteous, beautiful, and true. Wicked men and those who are opposed to him despise, reject, they impugn, they belittle it, and they mock the honor of God. The things that God has said are holy, man has perverted. The things that God has said are reprehensible and sinful. Man exalts him of some sort of sick, perverted virtue. In the New Testament, we read of this truth in Romans chapter 2. They exchange the things that God says are wicked, and they celebrate them as laudable, and then they take the things of God that are pure, and they reduce them, and they profane them, belittle them, and mock those who stand for God's standards of righteousness and truth. The same today as we did then. Our laws in this land today are beginning to reflect the reprehensible position of the unbeliever. We are now beginning to legitimize even in the codes, the written codes of our nation today, that which God hates. We are calling it something that's virtuous, that should be tolerated on equal plane and should not be considered shameful. And what should the position for the believer be? towards those who would redefine the standards of righteousness and say that the way that man and humanity and history have progressed up to this point, we can now things that we used to call sin now celebrate. They should be reprehensible to us. We should be angered that that is the case. And we should say with David, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? Isn't it time that the church rise up and take a stand? Haven't we had enough of the shameful behavior around us? Aren't we done with the pressure to endorse these actions and these activities all around that would say something else like the wisdom of man or the idols of this age determine what is true and what is right? The position of the unbeliever is to take everything honorable and make it shameful and to take everything shameful and to somehow say it has honor. Secondly, the position of the unbeliever of those who fall outside of God's favor and do not confess him as their lord they love vain words and David says isn't it about time my paraphrase isn't it about time that you abandon your love of vain words how long will you love the things that perish with the using this vanity and finally they seek after lies honors turn to shame the love of vain words, and thirdly, they seek after lies. You may remember a few weeks ago, we talked about in Psalm chapter 2, which we titled, Inevitable Submission. Some of the vanity that swirls around us, and I gave you a long list, and I'll read it to you again. As we consider this thought of how men, unbelievers, people who lie outside of honoring God as a standard of righteousness, love vain words, you need only think of all the propaganda and the press releases and the policy forums, the self-help books and the numerous shelves filled with books and the bookstores of the land and the think tanks and everything on the internet virtually aside from that which gives glory to God, which is a painfully small margin. All the spin and the theses and the strategies and all the committees and the focus groups, the talk shows, the headlines all the psyops campaigns from the culture around us, the speeches that are given, the political campaigns that you hear incessantly, the summits, all of these meetings that people have, the get-togethers, the conferences, the news anchors, the platforms, the agendas, all of the ad campaigns, the editorials, the theories, the magazines, the celebrities, the textbooks, academia, special interest groups, don't tell me there is not vanity in our culture. You cannot say that man has moved beyond the point where he embraces, celebrates, and loves vain words. We have such a short life. Our time is so finite. Our mental processing power is so limited. How do you think it looks to a holy God that we should waste so much of it processing vanity? Everything in these forums that I just mentioned, virtually all of it as a percentage, is all worthless. Horrible and reprehensible. It does nothing to encourage and build up the faith. To draw attention to God. It only allows man to feel numbed and size, Like a morphine drip on his fast slide to hell. The culture that we live in. Even the movies that we watch. And the television that we tune into. The things that are chosen to be given to us as news as if it was the most important, the things that are withheld, because it doesn't represent a sinful culture's agenda. All of this serves one purpose. It's the enemy's tool to hypnotize man, to distract him from the God of righteousness. It should be reprehensible to us. We should hate it as David did. And we should look for an answer to our prayer in a greater discernment to understand the vanity that lies on every side, to begin as his people to tune more of it out and to pray that our emotions would be subject and in submission to him. This is the position of those who lie outside of loving and lauding and seeking the righteousness of God to sort and order their affairs and to shape and direct the things that they love, their desires. They do not honor God They turn honor to shame. They love vain words and they seek after lies. So this is our dire situation. In the first verse, it seems like we're powerless to change anything because we're under so much stress all the time and opposition. In the second verse, it seems like the vast majority of ideas and people are opposed to God. So where is the hope? What is a believer to do? Where are the answers to all these questions that come to mind if such is the case, if the true confessing church is such a small percentage of the majority of mankind, and if there's so much confidence and boldness in the world to spend so much time and energy pursuing things that are absolutely worthless, how can we ever seek to make a dent, either in our situation or have a significant effect on the world around us? Well, these six points are answered in the text itself. And although David is honest and bold about the position and he's really forthright of sometimes the pressure that a believer finds himself in and also all of the wickedness around him, it's incredibly hopeful to see how answers to each of these positions are found. And the rest of the text I'll move through a little more quickly. And give you the corresponding verses. As, at least as they appear to me. And the first one is this. The believer is answered. In chapter 1 verse 1 again. Answer me when I call. O God of my righteousness. Answer me O God. This corresponds with verse 3. When David says. But know that the Lord has set apart. The godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Answer me when I call. The Lord hears when I call to him. O God of my righteousness. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Focus on God's power to sanctify and to make holy. Focus more on the fact that he could pluck one sinner from that teeming mass, that cesspool of wicked humanity that we just attempted to describe and set him apart. Make him holy. Give him the righteousness of Christ. And even though he's under stress, even though he falters, fails, and sometimes falls, the Lord upholds him with his right hand. And his confession at the end of his days is one of faith. With his last dying breath, there's a smile on his face as he passes from this wicked realm to glory. Focus on that. If the Lord could preserve you in spite of the majority, then surely he is a God who can set apart anything he chooses to sanctify the godly for himself. And truly, he hears you when you call. I just like to line up that column on the left. The Lord, answer me when I call. You are the God of my righteousness. With that verse, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Next, we have this phrase, you've given me relief when I was in distress. And I look to verse 7 when David says, you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You have given me relief when I was in distress. And then verse 7, You put more joy in my heart when their grain and their wine abound. There's those who prosper. And then in other passages, including the Psalms, it's a great lament. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do they have such great stores of wealth? Their grain and their wine abound. And here I am suffering, one of yours, yet in poverty by the world's standards. Well, God's measures of value are not worldly. What greater joy or what greater evidence to the power of God is one who has joy that is not dependent on the amount of wine or grain in their storehouse, in their possession? David seems to find an answer to this cry, I'm in stress, I need relief, by the joy that he knows transcends the circumstances. If you have put more joy in my heart than the happiest man has when he just won the lottery because you have set me apart for your holy purposes, then I know there's hope at the end of this prayer as well. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer again in verse 1. We mentioned those exclamation points that seem to denote a cry of distress. And then in the last verse in this chapter, in verse 8, David says, In peace I will both lay me down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. He begins his prayer in distress, and he closes after just eight verses with his head laying softly on the pillow, and it's not a fitful sleep. He is able, under confession of his weakness before the Lord and faith, and that God will answer the prayer, according to his timing and power, to sleep all the way through the night, even though enemies surround him on every side. The believer is answered. Every time he has an issue, the Lord has an answer. He has a hope for him. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. He has put more joy in the heart of a believer than those those unbelievers experience in the greatest prosperity this world can boast. In peace we lie down. Now, there is a hopeful note for those who are unbelieving even in this text. I mentioned to you how David's anger is quickened and how verse 2 is probably given with a lot of force. When he says, O oh man, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lives? But, the, the, but there's an answer to this position as well. In verse chapter 2, again, that first phrase, O oh man, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? I can I like to coordinate that with verse 4 when he says, Be angry and do not sin. In other words, David is saying. As we mentioned before, how the passions of this soul find their purpose in submission to God. Men are passionately pursuing something. They spend their energies doing something. And if they lie apart from the revelation of God, they do so embracing and pursuing sinful ends. But David is saying, no longer spend your energy in the passions of your soul turning things that God calls honorable into shameful things in your mind or celebrating shameful things as honorable, but be angry and do not sin. Secondly, he says, how long will you love vain words? And then the answer for that, if you find yourself one who is particularly attracted to vanity, the answer for you is to take verse four to heart. The second phrase, ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. Instead of filling your mind with all the vanity of the world around, take a moment to quiet your soul. Be silent and ponder in your hearts on your bed. And finally, instead of seeking after lies, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. If you wanted to do some further study, you might reference Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. In in Leviticus 7.37 there's a few sacrifices that are listed. A burnt offering sacrifice, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, and the ordination offering. When these are practiced in the right heart, when these were under the old covenant, when they were seen for what God intended them to be, and if they were followed and obeyed, then this verse would have applied, offer right sacrifices, and put your trust in the Lord. And much of the context of this chapter kind of reminds us of those sacrifices. You have put more joy in my heart than when the grain and the wine abound. And in the grain offering, there was an honoring of the Lord as our provider and taking joy that our God would take care of our needs. In the peace offering, there is a recognition that that blood must be shed in order for us to have reconciliation with God. And only then can we truly have peace That will allow us to lie down and sleep. Knowing that the Lord alone makes us to dwell in safety. So there is hope for the ungodly. If they would take to heart the admonition in Psalm chapter 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. It seems that sometimes it takes an amazing, horrible situation in order for us to be awakened to the fact that life was fragile and short, that there must be a truth, and that I am insufficient to define it or to describe it or even find it apart from divine intervention. Uh, Last night, I'm sure many of you have heard by now, but there was a tragic accident 100 yards from my driveway, a single car wreck where a man, I believe, has passed away, my dad found him. Uh, he was one of the first people there. My cousin was, was the first one to find him bleeding in this mangled car in the ditch just right around the corner, not even around the corner from my house. I was, sitting, I was kneeling down in the grass at the end of the driveway praying for this man's life and praying for his soul, not knowing what else to do, wishing that I could intervene but reminded how powerless my efforts are in a situation like that. That really defines how powerless we are in every circumstance to affect anything apart from God using us graciously. It is Him that allows us any hope, any answers to prayer. And we need only to take to heart, sit and ponder and be silent how fragile life is to get that kind of reminder. There's another almost car accident and i've been thinking about it for some time after mark shared it as a testimony mark was driving on the same stretch of county one only heading the opposite direction to town just a few weeks ago a couple months ago and a car did not see his jeep coming and pulled out making a left turn in front of him so it's going to go all the way into the second lane by the grace of god the angels guided mark's car around him and he was able to escape with what do you what would you say? inches to spare, Mark? Mark parks his car and as I recall him telling the story, he walked back and the man was very shaken up. and Mark said something to the effect. It, looked, it looks like the Lord was watching out for both of us today. I don't know that man uh, who almost hit Mark. I don't know if there's a TV in his home that's regularly watched. But, you know, statistically, I suppose the probability is high. After an event like that, do you suppose there might be one night in your life where you simply turn off the TV and you sit and ponder in your heart and you're silent and you think about how fragile life is? And that without hope of a power bigger than yourself to ensure it, you will never be able to have peace Perhaps that's what happened that night. Perhaps that man, if he didn't confess faith in Christ prior to, he might have even come to the Lord through that experience. Let's hope that is the case. But David knew that kind of stress. David knew that kind of danger. But David knew where his hope would lie. Through prayer, he found peace in the most difficult situations, the most tragic of conditions, in the most dangerous of life scenarios. That are thrown at us daily. For the believer. There truly is nothing to fear. But for the unbeliever. There is no basis for hope. So for us. When we read a psalm like this. I wonder how we should leave. What we should feel. What would it look like to have our emotions. And our passions as believers surrendered to the lordship of christ and then be motivated to go out and to share the message like david did with those who do not honor god and also to be quieted in our own soul if we're tempted to be stressed out and anxious the verse i'd like to close with is the one that we haven't explored in depth yet and i think it's such a great summary verse and it's psalm chapter 4 verse 7 i'm sorry Verse six, there are many who say who will show us some good lift up the light of your face upon us. O Lord. There are many who say who will show us some good. The answer will come if and when the Lord lifts up the light of your faith, lifts up the light of his face upon us. When people say who will show us some good that may be cynical or it may be sincere. There may be those who say, oh, yeah, people say there's good. People say there's true. But those Christians are just as hypocritical as anyone else. Who will show us some good? Really, is there any hope at the end of the day? There are those who might be asking that question sincerely. Where is good? Where is truth? What can I base my hope in? Who will show us some good? But the answer in either case is given in the second half of the verse. Lift up the light of your face upon us. O Lord. Now, if David had enough faith to be resolved in his own wrestlings and trials with the hope that God's covenant to him promised in the future, then you and I have no excuse to maintain a high level of stress or fear as we embrace our own trials. That verse is incredible, it's laden with glory and richness. But it reminds me of a verse that's become one of our favorites in 2 Corinthians. And if you want to turn there, I just find the connection between 2 Corinthians and Psalm 4. This would be 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So amazing. In Psalm 4, David is asking for the light of God's face to shine upon us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is describing exactly how that happened in Jesus Christ. He says earlier in verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, For Jesus sake, doesn't this remind us of the language of Psalm chapter four? Jesus is exalted as our Lord, even as David exalted the Lord as the God of his righteousness. But he goes on to say in verse six, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. One more corresponding verse, this time jumping to the New Testament to compare to the verse that David writes in Psalm 4. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, which is really a cry for revelation. Lord, our answer is for you to reveal yourself. Reveal yourself to the cynical. Reveal yourself to the sincere. Without that revelation, we have no hope. And what is the revelation of God to the believer today? It is the light of the glory of God, the knowledge of Jesus, His face, the image of God shining on us and our understanding in the heart of a believer. The ultimate answer to all of our questions The ultimate hope for whatever position we find ourselves in is the one and only exalted and glorified name of Jesus Christ. Everyone is answered by the Lord. And everyone finds their answer in Jesus Christ. Let's celebrate the fact, if you are a believer today, that you have been found by Him and that the answer has taken root in your soul. And let's pray that we take this message to those who may still be outside the fold, whether cynical or sincere, that we might have the gift to turn our trials into a witnessing opportunity, as David has exhibited for us. Even in the situations when we find ourselves the most weak, the most ill-equipped, the most illegitimate, we can take comfort in the fact that God uses and seeks to be and is glorified by using the weak things of this world to confound the wise and has a curious way, a glorious way of perfecting strength in our weakness. Let's close in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the great refuge that your word becomes for us when we realize its power and when we realize our weakness. Lord, I pray that you would equip us with a tongue that is sharpened, Lord Jesus, by your words, so the things that we say are no longer vain words and the things that we seek after are no longer lies. The things that we declare as holy and center our lives around and our evident priorities and our decisions would no longer be the dishonorable and the profane and, re- and represent hearts that are estranged from you. Lord, I pray that the opposite would be the case for the believers fellowshipping here. Let our hope be centered in our, in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, prophesied in the old, revealed in the new, and now, Lord Jesus, experienced by everyone who finds their hope in you today. Lord, I pray that you would give your church a voice like David's, who would boldly proclaim that you are the God of all righteousness. You are the God of our hope. You are the God of our truth. And Lord, as the day seems to grow darker we pray that your light in us would burn brighter in all that you might be glorified and the answer to the deepest, most probing, eternal questions that are hanging so thick in the air of this generation might be answered, Lord, an answer by your people ready in our lips and quick to be delivered that everything finds its purpose, its hope, its future in you. Only you can set apart the godly for yourself and only you will hear an answer when we call. We bring our petition before you this morning and ask, Lord, for our nation that though we hear the voices of many crying out, both cynical and sincere, that the answer would be forthcoming from your church, that your name might be lifted up and that men might be drawn unto you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.